Well, welcome everyone. Um, it's great to see such a, such a, a good-sized crowd here. Um, and um, it is my pleasure to be uh, introducing Miles Kimball, a distinguished research economist from the University of Michigan. Um, Miles urged me just now to keep my description and introduction to one sentence. Um, so I'm going to try and keep it brief. Um, Miles has uh, published extensively on a wide range of topics in macroeconomics, including consumption, fiscal policy, real business cycle theory, monetary policy, and stabilization. Um, he's a consummate teacher. He's an avid thinker about human behavior. And through it all, he is also the happiest economist I know. Um, and in fact, happiness is one of his bona fide research topics, which says about, a lot about him. Um, he honors us today by sharing his thoughts on monetary policy with us after a summer traveling um, as far away as New Zealand and Fiji. And we are really happy to have him here. Please help me welcome Miles. Thank you, Anika. That's very nice, and an and actual introduction from someone who, who has actually been around me, though she may exaggerate a little bit. So I wanted to, before I get into the talk itself, I just wanted to show you that uh, there's a lot more where this comes from on my blog, and you can see it there, Confessions of a Supply-Side Liberal. Today, it's, a, it's about cars, but if you go down on the sidebar, you will find this link breaking through the zero lower bound with electronic money, which then gets to a bibliographic post with a lot of links to everything I've written about this. And so you can explore more there. And you can see the pictorial metaphor there of, of breaking through the floor, which is what we're going to be talking about, breaking through the zero lower bound. OK, thanks. So, so, okay, let's see. Oh no, there. So this is this is the key message of my talk today. And if you don't remember anything else, I hope you'll remember this: that the zero lower bound is a policy choice, not a law of nature. In other words, it's quite possible for us to pursue a different policy where the Federal Reserve or other central bank can have interest rates as low as they need to be in order to stimulate the economy, stabilize things. Let me talk a little bit about why that's important. The, the zero lower bound is really quite a big obstacle for monetary policy, so much so that without the zero lower bound, the Great Recession would have been much, much shorter than in fact it was. It might have lasted one or two years instead of the effects, you know, not just the recession itself, but the after effects dragging on for a very long time. Uh, what I'm going to talk about is, is a substantial change in the monetary system, but it's no bigger than going off the gold standard, which is something we actually did. So every 50 years or so, we, we in fact do a major change in our monetary system, and I think it's time for another one. So. Uh, just to remind you of why this is important, I mentioned the Great Recession, but another example of the problems that not being able to lower interest rates can bring is the example of Japan, which for now running on 20 years or so has had a very sluggish economy, a lot of problems, um, 
they, in fact, their last big election was all about monetary policy because the Japanese people realized that monetary policy was being done very badly in Japan. Now, the, the ideas of exactly what to do instead have not yet converged on you know, pursuing negative interest rates, but nevertheless, people recognize that that hasn't been very good. And if you look at the rest of the world, it's not just the U.S., but you look at what's been happening in Europe, which is not great in economic terms, and uh, these are the kind of costs that we've had because we haven't been able to have the full power of monetary policy. Okay. There. So here's, here's another way of looking at things. If you look at the history of the growth rate of GDP, you can see that it was pretty jagged up until about the mid-80s, and then things calmed down. What happened here is basically there was an improvement in monetary policy. We figured out how to do monetary policy better. The, the economy was enough more stable that economists talked quite seriously about the great moderation. There were some very serious studies that went into this that said, yes, there, was, there were some other factors in that stabilization, but that monetary policy improvements really played a role. And then you see that things go bad when you get, to, you get to the financial crisis and things go bad. And I want to tell you a story about why that's about the zero lower bound and the, that inhibition on monetary policy. First of all, let's just understand what the zero lower bound is. So the zero lower bound arises when a government issues um, Pay, you know, dollar bills, coins that give you a zero interest rate over, over any horizon that uh, you can get as many as you want to out of the bank and then put them back in the bank on the same terms. That, those earn a zero interest rate, which you think, wow, that doesn't sound very impressive, but nowadays a zero safe interest rate is a pretty decent interest rate. And that acts as an interest rate floor. I mean, it, if uh, people, if, if things look frightening out there in the economy so that you're scared to invest, um, zero rate might be more than you're willing to, to borrow at, but if you could borrow at minus 2% or minus 3%, then investment opportunities start to look better. But the interest rates as it is now aren't gonna go as low as let's say the minus 2%, minus 3%, minus 4%, that you'd need to restart investment because people can just get zero on green pieces of paper. And, you know, this is like, um, this is really a government-created problem. The government has, creates the zero lower bound by offering these pieces of paper in, in somewhat an analogous way to not, not too long ago the United States government kept milk prices up by guaranteeing to buy milk at a certain price, and so the milk prices got, uh, uh, were sometimes too high, and the government would end up buying lots of milk. Then what, would, what did it do to the milk? Well, it gave some to poor people, then it gave to some to poor people in Africa. That became a problem when people said, oh, this, this milk you're giving away is stopping African mothers from breastfeeding their children. That's bad, so they stopped doing that, and they turned it into powdered milk destroying some of the value. Now, if having the wrong price of milk can cause those kind of problems, guess what? The interest rate is a more important price 
So if you, get the, if you have the interest rate stuck at too high a value, you have bigger problems, namely the, the, the Great Recession. Okay. So how do you eliminate the zero lower bound? The basic idea is simple, to lower the rate of return on paper currency. Now, let me tell the story of what the zero lower bound does through the lens of the quantity equation. So this is, this is the most famous equation in all of economics. This is as close as we get to E equals MC squared in importance. So that's the, that's the money supply. That's the velocity of money, how fast the money is turning over and being used. That's the price level, and that's GDP. What happens when you have a zero lower bound is because people can earn zero on paper currency, the uh, velocity V drops dramatically as interest rates fall low enough that even after storage costs, a zero interest rate on paper currency is as good a return as being in the Fed funds market or treasury bills. So in other words, if money is no longer used mainly for transactions, but also starts to be used just to save for later, then the money's not turning over very often, and so it doesn't create much economic activity. And so this is something that kind of puzzles a lot of people. They think, wow, the money supply, M, has been going up a lot. Doesn't that mean we have a ton of inflation in the offing? Well, it's counteracted by this V plummeting. If M goes way up, but V goes way down, you still don't get a lot of economic stimulus. Okay, okay so I told you I was gonna tell you a story, and so this is, this is part of my many efforts to try to advocate for the policy I'm gonna talk about. I've written a children's story, and I actually see some relatively young folks in the audience, so, so uh, uh, it's uh, not inappropriate. So here we go. And I, I got help from Donna D'Souza on the picture. So this is, I, the, wor the words are mine, but the picture is Donna helped me with. Here we go. The economy is everything people do to earn money. Every job is important. When there's too much money running around in the economy, the economy gets too big, like a balloon that is about to pop. When there's too little money running around in the economy, the, uh, the economy gets too small, like a balloon that's deflating. Wow. A few years ago, people got scared and wanted to keep their money safe. The government said it would keep their money safe as long as they kept the money locked away inside doing nothing. Oh no. Notice, this is the key point. The government is saying, hey, we're going to pay you a zero interest rate on those green pieces of paper when that's a nice interest rate compared to what you can get from, say, building a factory, then the government's paying you to keep the money sitting in a pile doing nothing. Uh, so people didn't let their money run around anymore, and the economy got too small and fell like a broken balloon. Many people lost their jobs and couldn't find new ones. So Ben and his friends printed more money. You know who that is, although this is, this, is not, this is not a very difficult interpretation of who that is. Uh, but people made the new money stay inside, sitting in the corner, and the piles of money sitting in the corner doing nothing got bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is true, by the way. Uh, balance sheets of firms, there's lots of money sitting on the balance sheets of firms, lots of money sitting in banks, not being lent out. 
Many people look at that and say, oh, the banks are broken. But this is exactly what you'd expect to happen with a zero lower bound. When, when the banks are earning zero on it and the companies are earning zero, and zero is a pretty decent return compared to you know, the risky return that you could get on, on some project, then you keep it in a pile. So it's not the, that the banks are broken. If they're broken, they're broken only because of the zero lower bound. If the firms look like they're acting weird sitting on those piles of cash, that's exactly what you expect from the zero lower bound. That's just what it looks like when the government is paying this zero interest rate on paper money in a time when the interest rate that it would take to get the economy going maybe say in 2009 would have been minus 4%. That's what Ben Bernanke said at the time would have been the appropriate interest rate absent the zero lower bound. Only a little bit of the money, since most of it was in a pile, only a little bit of the money was allowed to go outside and run around and play while the rest of the money stayed inside. So one day, Willem the Wise Warlock said, money needs to go outside, run around and play. Now, although you might have recognized Ben as Ben Bernanke, you're a little bit less likely to recognize Willem as Willem Bowder, who's now the, uh, the, the chief economist of uh, Citigroup. So, and he, uh, in, in, in the first decade of the 21st century, sort of worked out all the basic ways to get rid of the zero lower bound, one of which I'm elaborating on here in this talk today. So Willem, the wise warlock, said money needs to go outside, run around and play. So he raised his wand and cast a magic spell that would make the giant piles of money doing nothing start to shrink unless people let them go outside. And of course, letting them go outside is doing something like investing and making the economy go instead of sitting on a pile of green pieces of paper. So people finally let their money go out and run around, letting people go back to work until the economy was just the right size, like a balloon that is just right, that makes a baby smile. Now, of course, this last bit of the story, ever since Willem the Wise Warlock appears on the scene, didn't really happen. It could have happened, <laughs> but, but it didn't. And it's the sort of thing that I hope will happen for the Eurozone and for Japan now, which desperately need this kind of thing. Okay, so let me situate the proposal I, I'm, I'm advocating here in a little bit of history. And this is, this is a, a simple history of US monetary systems. Um, back in, you know, say up through the Civil War and after, both gold and silver were, were money. Then in 1873, it was actually, people who didn't like it called it the crime of 1873 but they made only gold, not silver, to, to be money. Then, um, so then we were on the gold standard for quite some time. And, uh, you know, after, you know, towards the end of World War II and after that, we moved off sort of a pure gold standard system, but still had fixed exchange rates. But then all of that went away when President Nixon went, went off gold entirely in 1971. And since then, we haven't been on a gold standard at all. We've been on a paper dollar standard. So there are two more changes I, th I hope will happen in the future. Uh, the one I'm talking about is what I'm going to call an electronic money system, where you still have paper dollars in the system. They're still part of the system but it's an electronic dollar standard. You make an electronic dollar, and by that I just mean money in the bank. I don't mean anything 
I don't mean Bitcoin, although, I mean, and I don't mean Bitcoin, I just mean if you have dollars in the bank that are kept track of in some computer, that's an electronic dollar. You spend electronic dollars with credit cards and debit cards and, and checks and electronic funds transfers. Um, and so that, that covers pretty much everything except for the green pieces of paper that we're used to, which of course in other countries are other colors and in some countries they're made of plastic. But uh, yeah, I'm gonna call them paper, paper money. So, um, and further down the road, we might have a transition to a, a totally cashless economy where we do everything in electronic currency. Uh, there are certain advantages to that. Ken Rogoff, for example, argues that this will help with crime control as well as with monetary policy. But that's not what I'm talking about. If you think that's where we're going, if you think we're going to a cashless economy, then what I'm talking about is a transitional system. It's a transitional system where you still have paper currency. That means some issues really happen at this later transition. If you're worried, if you think paper money is needed for privacy, for example, uh, that's about this transition, not the one I'm talking about. Okay, so the key virtues of this electronic money system where you still have cash, but the electronic dollar is the linchpin of the system are, are the following, and I'll talk about these more as we go along. It's, it's subtle in how it shows up for regular houses at modest negative interest rates. So if you only want to use it a little, it doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't, you know, bother people or seem like that big a deal. On the other hand, if you really need to have very low interest rates, for example, like Ben Bernanke said, we really ought to have had a minus 4% interest rate in 2009, then you can do that. And by the way, if we'd done that, we probably would have had a fairly robust recovery by the end of 2009, so it would have been a lot different than what actually happened. Some other advantages are it works entirely through the price system. There are no restrictions on the amounts of withdrawals or deposits. And the only incentives for how cash is handled that change at all are those that are inherent in interest rates. So it's basically working through interest rates rather than something else. So it's not, uh, it's gonna have the effects you intend and not, and not too many bad side effects. All right, so how does it work? Uh, how an electronic money system works is that money, money uh, in banks, which is the electronic money, um, is the primary type of money, you know. So if you pay with a credit card or a debit card or a check or something, nothing changes. Paper currency is second banana to electronic money. So what happens with paper currency will change. Okay, the value of a paper dollar in, will, relative to an electronic dollar will gradually change over time and that's what takes away any limitation on how low interest rates can go. I'll say more on that. However, the only time a paper dollar needs to change in value relative to an electronic dollar is during a deep recession and a period of time after that. So, you know, unless you hit a deep recession, you don't have to do anything different than now. Okay. So let's give an example of how you can lower the rate of return on paper currency so that you can have say a minus 2% interest rate without people using the paper currency as an end run around that minus 2% interest rate. So, I mean, a lot of people have this intuition, wait, how can you possibly have a minus 2% interest rate? I can just take, take the cash and put it under my mattress. Okay, that's exactly what we're gonna do something about. Okay, so 
here's the idea. So suppose you're, you're earning minus 2% in, um, let's say you're a bank that has a reserve account with a central bank. At minus 2%, $100 in an electronic reserve account will turn into $98 after a year. $100 withdrawn into paper currency is certainly going to say $100 on its face a year from now. We're not going to change the physical pieces of paper at all. But it is quite possible at the end of that year to treat 100 paper dollars as being in all respects equivalent to 98 electronic dollars. So it starts out being worth you know, one for one the same as electronic money, but at the end of the year, it's, it's uh, worth, you know, 98 cents on the dollar. Then, if you do that, then keeping $100 under the mattress doesn't earn any more than keeping it in the bank. It's minus 2% either way. Notice I'm not, in doing this, we're not disadvantaging paper money at all. It's just getting the same interest rate you'd get in the bank it's just that now there's no way, to, no way to do an end run around the negative interest rates, and that's important because we're, there, there are situations in a deep recession when you need the negative interest rates to get the economy going. And, of course, uh, several European countries are recognizing the value of negative interest rates. Uh, Switzerland is at minus three-quarters of a percent. The European Central Bank is at minus two-tenths of a percent. Uh, Sweden and Denmark also have negative interest rates. I mean, they have not yet taken away this zero return on paper currency, which is why they don't go deeper so far. They have not yet taken the step that I'm, that I'm recommending, but they've, they're, they're inching up to, they do have the negative interest rates here. Um, and the difference in this system is you're having a negative interest rate on cash, and no country has yet done the negative interest rate on cash. though. You know, uh, a few cities did did that kind of thing. Did it did it a different way in the Great Reset in the Great Depression, a long time ago. Okay, now how do you do this? How do you get the paper money to gradually, gradually become uh, uh, worth less compared to uh, electronic money? Um, the, the background you need to know is that uh, central banks like the Fed serve as the bankers bank. They're, they're a bank for banks. And so, uh, you know, we have, we have accounts with banks. Banks have accounts with the Fed. And uh, when, when a bank wants to put cash into its reserve account, which is its account at the, at the Fed, at the Fed um, it goes to the cash window. So the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago has a cash window. There's a, there's a place where people will bring piles of cash to deposit them in their reserve accounts. Um, uh, if a hundred paper dollars is treated as equivalent to 98 electronic dollars at the cash window for both deposits and withdrawals, that's what they'll be worth. That's what makes those paper dollars worth what they are, is how they're treated at the cash window. And so this is, this is a picture from, uh, it's a translated version of a graphic in an interview I had with a, with a Swiss journalist here. But the main thing is it's showing is it's, it's all going down at the cash window of the central bank. You, you don't have to do much anywhere else. The key action is, is just there at the cash window of the central bank. And so you're, if you pull money out, uh, you actually get extra paper dollars for the, for the electronic dollars you put out. Because if you can pull out 98 
paper dollars and get, sorry, if you can pull out 98 electronic dollars and get um, 100 paper dollars, you can also pull out 100 electronic dollars and then get 102 paper dollars in change. So you can get extra paper dollars if you pull money out, but if you put money in, you, your paper dollars don't quite go quite as far in when it's credited to your account. So it's an exchange rate at the cash window of the central bank. So it's important to understand why you can defend this exchange rate. There's no way to get this exchange rate will hold. If the, if the Fed says at the cash window, 90, you know, 98 electronic dollars equals 100 paper dollars, that's what it'll be. Why? You have the same central bank that can issue both electronic dollars and paper dollars in unlimited quantities. Um, it's a lot, and, and so they can perfectly defend the exchange rate. There's aspects of this we don't ever question. Why is it that two, two $10 bills is the same as, as a $20 bill? Guess what? It's not because of the numbers written on the front. It's because you can take a $20 bill to the cash window of the Fed and turn it into a two $10 bills, and then, of course, that gets transmitted to the regular banking customers. Um, face value alone doesn't determine it, and I'll give you an example from the criminal underworld. So there are many mob movies where you have this scene. and $20 bills. You know, now if you're far away from the point of laundering, maybe you'd rather have $100 bills because they're easy to transport or to store. But when you get close to the point of laundering the money, then uh, you want 10s and 20s. And, and so, you know, why would, the, why would the criminal say bring in 10s and 20s? Because in the criminal underground, that it, you're cheating if you're bringing $100 bills because they're just not worth as much as the same face value So the, the, the difference is from all the rest of us is that the criminals don't have uh, easy access to the banking system because, you know, you try to access the banking system and you create a paper trail and that's a problem for, for criminals. So, so the, the point here is it's not the numbers on the front that, that give you the value of these pieces of paper. It's what they're worth at the cash window of the central bank. Okay. Now, just to, just to give you a bit more history, what, what's the magic in this proposal? For a long time, um, many, many economists have been aware of Silvio Gazelle's proposal, which was to say, okay, make people pay And, uh, and I think there's a, there's a good reason for that. It looks, it looks really obviously like a tax. <laughs> it's, it's administratively difficult. So in fact, it hasn't happened. So the point here is we don't have to directly 
make people pay a tax on the money what we can do is just have it very very gradually lose some value by changing the exchange rate and and so that's 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 the new opportunity that's opened up here all right now I'm going to call this rate of return on paper currency the paper currency interest rate just for convenience but the idea is that's going to be very tightly controlled and the, the, the magic is in, in, in gradually, gradually changing that exchange rate. So let me give you an example. So, so this is a bit complicated, but let me, let me run through it. So um, how is it that the central bank could have an interest rate of minus 2% and there's no way for people to get around it uh, or to get better than 2% by doing, doing something else? Here's how it would work. So, Let's imagine we have a bunch of electronic short-term rates, treasury bill rates, Fed fund rates, interest on reserves, all at minus 2% for a couple years to help the economy recover. Okay? And then after that, the economy recovers, and you first go up to zero, and then up to 2%, and things are, are normal after that. So if I just keep track of what would happen if I put $100 in an electronic account, regular, you know, a reserve account, let's say, it would go from 100 to 98 to 96, so it does shrink. Uh, but those are just numbers in a computer, so there's no, nothing really complicated about having it shrink. You can always have the number in the computer get smaller. Then it kind of stays the same and then gradually goes up to 98, 100, 102, and with, at a 2%, plus 2% interest rate, it would keep getting a little bigger. Um, now, what about the paper dollars? Well, it, we can have a $100 bill that continues to say $100 on its face, it's not physically any different than before, but we can still get the paper currency interest rate to track that up here, minus 2%, minus 2%, 0, 2%, 2%, uh, and then over here we're, we're going to go back to normal now at the, at the end of this time because uh, we, you know, I'll talk about, you know, we can go back to normal at the end, but here for this period of time it's exactly tracking that, and then here it's lower, so you'd rather have money in the bank than in paper currency. Okay, how are we doing that? We're having this exchange rate. How many electronic dollars a paper dollar is worth shrinks from one dollar for dollar to 98 cents on the dollar to 96 cents on the dollar. Then it just stays at 96 cents. Then it gradually comes back up to being worth 98 cents on the dollar, then one for one, a par, I'll call that. And then you just stop at par. And once you're back at par, it looks very much like the current system. I mean. You know, financial analysts will still think about the fact that it might go off par again someday, but for regular households, it looks an awful lot like the current system once you're back at par and staying there for substantial lengths of time. So you have these episodes of going off par when you have a serious recession. The rest of the time, things look very, very much like they do now. So that's the sense in which this is designed to be a, a system as close to the current system as possible. There are many ways to get rid of the zero lower bound. My, my efforts have been to try to come up with a system that's as close as possible to the current system. So, um, and, and just think about how if you have that $100 bill, what's happening? That $100 bill is worth, that $100 bill is worth 100 electronic dollars at first, then it still says 100 on the face, but it's really only worth $98, then 96, 96, 98, 100. Notice that's the same amount of money there. You're not hurting from keeping the paper money. There's nothing wrong with storing the paper money on the, under the mattress. There's just no advantage compared to, 
to uh, uh, putting it in the bank. And then, of course, over here, you're better off putting it in the bank after you're back to normal. All right, so that's a complicated example, but that's, that's an important example because it shows that this is foolproof in the sense that there is no way to get around these negative interest rates under this system. I mean, you can think and think of uh, as a way to try to get around it, but simply because we've made the rate of return just exactly the same, you, there's just no way to get around it. Okay, uh, with, with paper currency anyway. Okay, so what's going on here? Notice it's not the level of the exchange rate that matters, it's the rate of change. And, and the analogy I'd like to give you there is to a sundial. How do you tell how much time has passed by looking at a sundial? It's how far the shadow has moved. And similarly, it's how far the exchange rate at the cash window of the Fed has moved, the Fed or other central bank has moved, that tells you how much uh, cumulative interest there's been over that time. Okay, so the magic is actually not in the um, exchange rate, but in the change in the exchange rate, how it's gradually changing over time. Okay, now um, let's back up a little bit and just talk about that, uh, what I said a bit ago about making the electronic dollar the centerpiece of the system and paper dollars second banana. Can the government really do that? The answer is basically yes. People have to deal, the, deal with the government a lot. Uh, just saying people have to calculate their taxes in terms of electronic dollars goes a long way to making that the, the main thing. Um, we have examples where, the, the, like daylight savings time, where the government has determined the way people keep track of things. You know, there are no government inspectors going around and looking at everybody's clock to make sure you change it at daylight savings time, but most people do. Why? Because they've got to coordinate with everybody else. So if the government is saying, hey, we're, we're pointing at that equilibrium where everybody's using electronic dollars to keep track of things, people will think, ah, I've got to do the same thing as everybody else. So, so they'll do that. Um, the, uh, so what's, what's going on here in which is the key aspect? Let's, let's think of those traditional lists of the functions of money and I can make clear what's going on. You know, in a macroeconomics class, principles of macro, you would learn something like this. There are four things that money can do. It's a store of value. It'll, Namely, it'll be worth something later on. It's a medium of exchange. You can use it to buy things. It's a unit of account, meaning it's the yardstick used for setting out how much has to be paid for things. Let me actually describe that as a unit of price stickiness. If you post a price, what does it mean? It means so many, so many dollars. That's the unit of account function. And then you have a unit of deferred payment, the yardstick for paying off debts. That's the legal tender role. Okay, so which of the traditional functions of money matters most for monetary policy. So let me give you just 15 seconds to try to choose. So try to actually answer this. You've got four choices. Uh, actually, let me take a vote here. How many of you think that the key thing for monetary policy is store of value? Raise your hand. Okay, medium of exchange. Unit of account. Okay, unit of deferred payment. Wow, you, you aced this as a group. It's absolutely the unit of account. So the unit of account function of money is the key for monetary policy. In fact, the most common model, certainly, for why money affects the economy 
is that it's because of sticky prices or some notice you know wages are just the price of labor so I can include wages as, as one more price but uh, sticky prices are the standard uh, story for how monetary policy can interact with the economy and have an effect on it so that implies that it's really the unit the yardstick that's used for declaring prices that's the important thing for monetary policy it's the unit of account role and so as long as electronic dollars are the unit of an electronic dollar is the unit of account the yardstick for measuring things monetary policy will done in terms of electronic money will have the usual effects okay and in practice governments do have control of the unit of account and we can see this by the exceptions the the exception is Countries that have really serious hyperinflations sometimes lose control of their unit of account. So like Israel, when it had like 100% inflation uh, for a while, people started quoting prices in US dollars. And yet, even countries that lose control of their unit of account, as soon as they stop the inflation, you know, say, okay, we're not gonna try to balance the budget by printing money anymore. They, 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 they uh, you know, get rid of the temptations to inflation like balancing the budget and uh, they do a currency reform issuing a new currency that hasn't yet lost its value and they regain control of their unit of account so in fact uh, you know in a theoretical model sometimes it looks wow how do you know what will be the unit of account but in practice governments have been able to to declare a unit of account successfully um, you know and this is true even when they say have inflation of 10 to 30 percent so even when paper currency is disadvantaged by, say, 10 to 30% relative to other interest rates or, or, or more, uh, people don't switch to the foreign currency lightly. So this is something governments can actually do. Okay, I just have a couple slides here to, to say these ideas aren't new. I mentioned Willem Bowder here. Another person who deserves some credit is Marvin Goodfriend, who talked about putting electronic strips into paper currency to do things like Silvio Gazelle's stamped currency. There are journalists who talked about it. Uh, Greg Mankiw caused some discussion about it. The, um, I got into this business in November 2012, about a little less than three years ago. Paul Romer has been involved in it. Ken Rogoff has been advocating the cashless economy. So the, the, the new things here are just working out some administrative details, really. Okay. So I, I showed you where to read more on this. So and for the rest of the talk, I want to talk about some objections you could have to this system. And uh, there are technical objections. That's not what I'm going to talk about tonight. I talked about that earlier today. I, I'm going to focus on political objections. And there are two kinds of political objections. One objection is to negative interest rates. And uh, the other objection is to what it takes to eliminate the zero lower bounds so you can have negative interest rates. And those deserve to be distinguished. But this, uh, th this B here is, suppose you take negative interest rates as desirable, what about what you have to do to paper currency to make that possible? Okay, so one thing that many people actually do say is negative interest rates are unfair to savers. Well, let's look at that. First of all, the first thing I want to mention is what about borrowers? We care about them too, they matter too. Ne negative interest rates hurt savers but help borrowers. I mean, there's nothing, you could say, I mean, every price 
there's somebody on one side who wants the price high and somebody on the other price who wants it low. I talked about milk prices earlier. Dairy farmers want high milk prices. Consumers want low milk prices. But at least you have someone else on the other side benefiting. Now, digging a little deeper, what is the social function of a positive interest rate? The, po the social function of a positive interest rate is to reward people sa for saving when saving is what the economy needs. But if you're in a deep recession, you actually want people to spend more. You don't want people saving during a deep recession. So in those rare periods of time when we don't want people saving, why should we be rewarding them for saving then? We should wait and reward them for saving in the normal times when saving is a good thing, not rewarding them for saving in those, in those relatively infrequent times when saving is a bad thing. So it matters when. It's not, it's not good enough to say, oh, saving is a good thing, no. It's, it's a matter of timing. Most of the time, saving is a good thing. Sometimes, saving is a bad thing for the economy. And when it's a bad thing, we ought to have negative interest rates to signal the fact that saving is a bad thing. Now, uh, if you want to, the, the saver could easily be unconvinced because this still doesn't make me happy. But let me give you the argument that speaks to the saver. What are the alternatives? Um, let's look at what actually happened and what could have happened. What could have happened would be, say, minus 4% in 2009, then zero in 2010, and then it kind of goes back to normal after that. Compare that to what actually happened because we didn't break through the zero lower bound. We had zero interest rates in 2009, zero interest rates in 2010, zero interest rates in 2011, zero interest rates in 2012, zero interest rates in 2013, zero interest rates in 2014. Uh, we're going to get through most of 2015 with zero interest rates. That's most of eight years. Which do you choose? One year of minus 4% and zero and above it thereafter, or eight years of 0%. As a saver, you're much better off with one year of minus 4% then zero and then positive, then you are with uh, eight years of zero percent. It's not like what we actually did is good for savers. It just isn't. Um, savers are much better off if you stabilize the economy and get it back on track. Now, another th important thing to say is that um, it's quite easy to, you know, if you're worried about the politics of, of savers facing negative interest rates, it's very easy to shield them from them, from those negative interest rates. And in fact, um, the banks do this to a fair extent themselves. So what's happening in Switzerland, for example, is the regular households that have relatively modest balances, they're getting a zero interest rates, but the, but the big companies and the people who have very large bank accounts are facing negative interest rates. So it's very easy to have most people face zero interest rates um, and, and most of the money face negative interest rates because some people have a lot more, some people in some firms have a lot more money than others. Um, now, if you go into deeper negative rates, the banks won't be able to afford that, but it's, uh, the, the government, if it wants to, can, can sort of subsidize, subsidize the provision of zero interest rates to the small savers. That's not a purist version of these things, but it's quite possible. Um, one, one thing I should also mention is um, the income tax system actually already does this. 
So the government, within a tax year, will give you a zero interest rate. So you can't. In a negative interest rate environment, I, I wrote a column um, with, my, with my brother, who's a tax lawyer. Between tax years, you would face a negative interest rate because that's declared by the Secretary of Treasury in line with short-term interest rates generally, like the Treasury bill rate. But within a tax year, you could get a zero interest rate. And so if, if people were, just wanted to get a zero interest rate on modest amounts of money, they could just pay their taxes ahead. So, so it's actually quite easy to shield people to some extent from the negative interest rates. It's already written into law. Okay, another objection. Low interest rates will lead to another financial crisis. Okay, now let's think about this. So I've got to tell you a story here. Larry Summers, who was Treasury Secretary a while back and more recently was, uh, was uh, President Obama's chief economic advisor, gave a talk at the IMF saying, wow, I'm, I'm worried that if we have, uh, if we're, uh, have tighter regulations on banks, that then we, we won't be able to stimulate the economy enough. Well, let's think about that a little bit. If you can make interest rates go as low as needed, you no longer have to go easy on banks just to keep the economy going because you have as much stimulative power as you need. So actually, you can be much tougher on banks and, and clearer. Now, when I say tougher on banks, I just mean in an appropriate sense, maintaining the appropriate property rights by saying, look, if you want to risk the money, it had better be your shareholders' money and not the taxpayers' money. How do you do that? You make sure that the banks have enough stockholder money behind them. That's called an, an equity requirement or a capital requirement. If you can make interest rates go as negative as you need to, you can, you can have higher equity requirements without worrying about, you know, not having enough aggregate demand. Uh, in other words, knowing that the zero lower bound is a paper-thin barrier that we can break through, we can and could sh keep pushing up the common equity capital conservation buffer to 30, 50 percent without fear of hurting the economy. What's a capital conservation buffer? It says, okay, look, banks, we're going to give you a little time to get up the share of stockholder financing that you have behind you. And we, we just, until you get, until you're taking on your own risks as fully as you should be, you don't get to pay dividends, you don't get to buy back your own stock, you don't get to bail out your foreign subsidiaries that are under, under weaker rules. And gradually, the, the amount of, you know, of stockholder financing behind you will grow and so it'll be your, your shareholders taking the risks rather than it falling back on the tax holders when we, the taxpayers when we have to bail you out because otherwise it would tank the economy. So that's what we should do. We can be much, much more appropriately tough on banks if we know we can break through the zero lower bound. Okay. Okay. Next objection. Negative interest rates will erode the value of money. Well, guess what? Negative interest rates, being able to have negative interest rates and deep ones means we can erode the value of money less. Why? As it is now, the Fed, the European Central Bank, uh, many other central banks have inflation of 2% simply because they're worried about the zero lower bound or primarily because they're worried about the zero lower bound. Actually, Ben Bernanke came to the University of Michigan in an answer to a question said exactly that when asked why, why do you have 2% inflation instead of zero? Take away the zero lower bound. There might be some other reasons you'd want inflation above zero, but my prediction is 
once the zero lower bound is eliminated, that most central banks, in fact, would choose to have zero inflation. So in fact, the value of money would be eroded less. So this is, this is not an inflationary policy because in a way what you're saying is by having the value of just paper money erode in serious recessions, we can make it so the electronic dollar always keeps a nearly constant value. So it's not just that you have an electronic dollar standard, you're making it a very good electronic dollar standard. It doesn't lose value. You can, I'm, I'm serious about saying that you can have this zero inflation, which makes it so you could have an absolute price level target, which has a variety of monetary policy advantages, but it also has social advantages too, like grandparents and grandchildren will be able to talk about prices and understand one another. Uh, Thomas, Thomas Piketty in his, in his book on capital in the, uh, in, the, in the 21st century has a bit where he says, we don't understand what novelists are saying anymore. It used to be when, when we didn't have a lot of inflation. Now, those were actually the bad old days of the gold standard and you know, silver standard and so on. It's not like they were great, but what they did do, uh, one advantage of the no inflation that was part of, the, part of that system is that, um, you know, you could say how much money someone was making in a Jane Austen, when Jane Austen was writing, and the people who read that at the time knew what that meant. They knew just what the social situation of that person was. We can't communicate across, across the, the centuries very well uh, about money, um, and so that's, that's an advantage. Okay, and notice it, it's going to work much better if you have an electronic dollar that can really keep a constant value rather than something like gold where Gold was not a stable unit of value because people would discover gold and then you'd get inflation because there was more gold floating around. I mean, or you would, uh, you know, have the economy grow so that you actually needed more money and yet there was a limited amount of gold. So gold doesn't work well where the electronic money can be adjusted. Okay, now here's another very interesting objection to low interest rates. You know, and by the way, most of these, many of these, who uh, just kind of regularly objects to monetary stimulus. And they often say, well, look, monetary stimulus distracts from supply-side reform. And they say this a lot about Europe. Absolutely, Europe needs a lot of supply-side reform. But the question I'm talking about is not whether Europe needs supply-side reform. It does. The question is whether having tight monetary policy is going to help you get more reform. First of all, the, the record is not that good. You've had a lot of monetary policy that wasn't as stimulative as it should be, and you're, you haven't gotten all the reform that you would have hoped for. And um, part of that is, you know, if you, if you don't have enough demand-side stimulus, politically people can say, look, the problem is we don't have the demand-side stimulus. We don't need that reform, so it's not necessarily helping your reform. Um, another thing is, look, a lot of supply-side reforms are easier when the economy is doing well. So let me give you an example of, of Japan. So when I walk around Tokyo, I, I see many people doing jobs that I think, wow, nobody in the United States would be doing that job. Because they're, they're you know, they're, of course, some of, these, some of these things are cultural, like they have greeters at the department store. So I'm not talking about those folks. They're, they're, doing, they're doing a job that needs to be done. 
but, but you know, there are people, you know, sweeping up and cleaning up when in, in the U.S. we'd just let it be a little dirtier. And, um, and uh, part of what's going on is you don't feel good about laying somebody off in the middle of bad economic times. Firms don't feel good about it. The government doesn't feel good about it and so often stands in the way. And, but if the economy is doing well, you can move people from jobs that are not very high priority for society to other jobs because there are plenty of jobs going around. If there, if there are plenty of jobs, we feel a lot better about moving people from job A to job B than we do about just throwing somebody out of job A and okay, good luck in, the, in, in unemployment. So it's a lot easier to move people and the same thing goes for, for capital. You know, we're, we're more willing to let firms fail and, you know, and this is even more true in other countries, to let firms fail and then have those resources, you know, have that building get used by another firm when the economy is doing well. So, so actually, you know, the, the severe costs of, real, of moving resources around when there's a lot of unemployment get in the way of supply-side reform. Uh, I want to argue also that governments that end recessions quickly gain the credibility to implement reforms. Now, we don't know what... This is a claim about something that didn't happen because no government, you know, not many governments really ended the recessions quickly. Some of the, some of the smaller countries did pretty well. Um, uh, fourth, I want to say that keeping the, you know, if you do good monetary policy, what's good monetary policy? Well, there's some fancy things you could do, but quite honestly, monetary policy that's excellent and much better than any existing central bank is to keep GDP, to keep output all the time at the natural level of output. That is excellent monetary policy. Suppose you did that. If you kept, and you've got to do more than just break through the zero lower bound, you need some other improvements in monetary policy, but suppose you kept the uh, output at the natural level of output, then people would be talking about the natural level of output. And guess what? The only, by definition, the only way to get the natural level of output up is to do supply-side reforms. You know, some of it, you know, some, to some extent you have technological improvement anyway, but the only way to improve the natural level of output by, by policy is to do supply-side reforms. So you'd get people to focus on that and talk about it more if there wasn't this distraction of the economy being away from the natural level of output. I mean, think of all the energy that's gone into talking about recessions and booms and stuff. If we just stayed at the natural level of output, we'd have to talk about how do we get technology to improve faster? How do we improve the educational system? How do we do the things that are really going to make the economy grow in the long run? All of that we can at least spend more time talking about if, if we've stabilized the economy at the natural level of output. And I say stabilized, but of course the natural level of output moves around as uh, things happen like the, the rate of technological progress moves around. Okay. Um, finally, I want to point out that uh, monetary stimulus avoids the, the downsides of fiscal stimulus. In particular, it avoids the increase in the national debt that you get if you try to do fiscal stimulus. Uh, now, and that gets in the way of supply-side reform in, in two obvious ways. First of all, you have more national debt and you end up having to have higher taxes to pay it off. Secondly, uh, you, you, you tend to cut spending and some of that spending is productive, like what about spending on scientific research? And there are various valuable things the government 
could otherwise be doing that it won't be doing because the national debt is higher because you spent the mon money quickly and inefficiently as stimulus. So monetary stimulus doesn't have those downsides of fiscal stimulus. And it's, it's much, there are a lot of advantages to stabilization through monetary policy that we could talk about. But those advantages depend on having the full reign of monetary policy, including negative interest rates. Okay. Now let's turn to not objections to negative interest rates, but objections to the specific things that I've been uh, uh, saying are needed to get the negative interest rates. Um, you could say, well, people are emotionally attached to paper currency and value it for privacy. Well, as far as the privacy issue, we're keeping the cash around, so that won't change. Um, most of the time, the electronic money system looks like the status quo except that inflation can get gradually be lowered, which helps people who use cash because the value of their cash gets eroded less. And when paper currency is away from par, it's typically earning a, about as much uh, as bank accounts. So paper currency isn't disadvantaged, it's just earning the same. So it's not like you're really hurting any of the benefits that come from cash. In fact, you're making it a little easier on people who use cash, except for they might say things are a little more complicated. Well, how much more complicated? Well, first of all, for people who use credit cards and debit cards at the store, not a bit more complicated. Secondly, for people who like to use cash, at worst, there's a surcharge for paying with cash at the cash register that looks a lot like a sales tax. People don't get up in arms about the extra complexity of paying a sales tax at the cash register that goes beyond the price that you see on the, on the shelf. Uh, and this is no worse. But another thing that's worth pointing out, which is related to what I said, if, if you only need modest doses, this actually uh, doesn't look like that big a deal, is that um, if, if paper currency were only a few percent off par, you'd probably have paper currency accepted at par at the retailer, not at the bank. At the bank, it would be worth less. But if you go spend it in a store, they'd probably accept it at par. Why? Because as it is, you may not realize this, but when you, when you pay with an American Express card, that merchant might get like 96 and a half cents on the dollar by, after, after they pay American Express their fee. So, you know, if you pay with cash, as it is now, they're ahead. And if the cash were, a, 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 you know, a little bit below par, they'd still be ahead if, they, if you paid with cash. So they might as well, uh, you know, give you face value for the money. Okay, um, another objection, having paper currency below par cheats creditors because people can pay off their debts at a discount. Well, this is actually a real problem. It's one that's an unpleasant side effect, uh, but it can be avoided in one of two ways. You can have a law that says that all monetary amounts in contracts should be interpreted as electronic money equivalents. That is where the meaning of a dollar is ambiguous, it should be interpreted in court to mean an electronic dollar or the equivalent value of paper money. That's a, that's a perfectly good solution. And, um, you know, that's probably the solution that, say, to, that most parliamentary systems would use. Or, or let's, let's say England, I hope, would do something like that. In the U.S., let's say you can't get a law like this through Congress. There's a private solution, which is uh, you just write into the debt contract, hey, if paper currency is ever away from par, this is how to interpret this contract. Those ought to be legally enforceable because gold clauses, which, which sort of F, uh, Franklin Roosevelt famously outlawed gold clauses, are actually 
legal again now. That's been established in court. And an electronic money clause ought to be analogous to that. So you just say in the contract what happens if paper currency is away from par. And guess what? If you prepare it a little in advance, all it takes is to convince the lawyers. You don't need the government to do anything. All you need to do is to convince the lawyers who write the boilerplate for debt contracts that they should worry about paper currency being away from par. And the thing in your favor is lawyers are good at worrying. This is their job to worry. So, so uh, what I'm hoping that we'll have uh, one of these days have an international conference focusing on legal issues and we can invite some of those lawyers who write the boilerplate and get them worried. I think that's quite possible. And then a lot of debt contracts turn over if you, you know, after seven years or something, maybe two thirds of all the debt contracts would have this clause in them and there'd be a few old debt contracts that didn't. Okay. Okay, next objection. A paper dollar provides a solid standard, an electronic dollar doesn't. This actually isn't right. You know, we're used to paper dollars now. They were hugely controversial. Go back, you know, go back into the 19th century and people loved gold. And this idea that you'd have this paper dollar seemed shocking and appalling. Okay, you know, there's some people who want to go back there, bad idea. But anyway, back then, people thought that was uh, shocking. Uh, but people got used to the paper money standard. They can also get used to an electronic money standard. Now, as I said, gold was not a great standard. It wasn't stable because it was subject to the vagaries of gold discoveries relative to the underlying economic growth rate. You know, here, if you have new inventions and the economy grows fast, then you have a shortage of gold, and that causes real problems for the economy. When, once you have something, you know, either paper or electronic money, then the central bank can make more money to go along with the greater productive capacity of the economy because of more inventions. I mean, you know, on a gold standard, you know, the fact that there was a lot of technological progress in the 20s then helped to create this shortage of money in the, in the 30s. You don't have that problem with a paper or a, an electronic standard. And the key thing is that as soon as you get away from something that's not in the control of the central bank at all, a central bank committed to price stability can adjust to get the right amount of money, whether it's paper or electronic money. And, you know, the folks in central banks are much more committed to price stability than you think. You know, it's just wild to me, and people don't know this, but I know how economists are trained and how the folks who go into the central bank are thinking. And they are all trained about the terrible inflation in the 70s, and they don't want to go back there. Central banks are much more committed to keeping inflation down than, than folks realize. If you, know, if you only knew how economists are trained and how those folks think, you'd realize how anti-inflation they are. And that's one of the reasons I think if you take away the zero lower bound, that inflation would go down from 2% to zero in most countries. Okay, let me end by quoting to you a little bit from my, my slate piece where I kind of try to give an overview of these issues. It's called How Governments Can and Should Beat Bitcoin at Its Own Game. And you can find the link on my, on my um, blog, Confessions of a Supply-Side Liberal, where we showed you. In our current monetary system, we take for granted an interest rate of zero on paper currency. That interest rate of zero can falsely signal to households and firms that it is okay for them to hold back on spending, even at times when businesses desperately need the customers and people desperately need the jobs that extra spending would provide. Yesterday's paper currency is not only a barrier to speedy recovery from deep recessions, 
It is also a barrier to ending inflation. Take paper currency off its pedestal and inflation is no longer necessary to provide this space for monetary policy since interest rates can go down instead of inflation having to go up. Then there is nothing standing in the way of ending inflation forever. So what do we have to do? Our first step is to establish official government sanctioned electronic money in a way that makes use, the use of electronic money as convenient and seamless as possible. And in this context, uh, really the people who are inventing new, new ways of doing electronic payment systems uh, that get around the Visa, American Express, MasterCard, oligopoly are really on the side of angels and should be encouraged. Because if you just make it really you know, convenient to use electronic money, then people get used to electronic money and, and really are going to be you know, less shocked when you go to an electronic money standard. Um, okay. The, uh, then you want to kind of, you want to add to the prestige of electronic money as step one, and then you want to subtract from the prestige of, of paper money. Uh, you know, it'd be nice to, uh, you know, you, you can give, a simple thing you can do is to give anyone at any time the right to refuse payment in paper currency. Notice, if you did that, paper currency would no longer be legal tender, even if it says the words legal tender on it. If people have a right to refuse payment in it, it isn't really legal tender. So you'd start dethroning paper currency gradually or, or suddenly, and then uh, you know, fix the debt contracts, as we talked about. Uh, then you just kind of search in the nooks and crannies of the legal code and government agency regulations for weird things. I talk, the, the tax situation isn't so bad, except there still is this loophole that maybe people will show up with suitcases of cash to pay their taxes if it's below par. You want to foreclose things like that. You want to encourage businesses to think about how things will change. It's good for people to be prepared, and there are definitely things to be prepared about. You want to make sure the central bank has the authority to give interest rates negative, and then once you've got it all in place and you've, you've you know, actually used it in a real recession, then you can start bringing down inflation because you don't need inflation anymore to steer away from the zero lower bound. You've just broken through the zero lower bound. You've, uh, and so here's my, here's my ending statement. It's become traditional for U.S. Treasury secretaries to periodically repeat the mantra, a strong dollar is in our nation's interests. I want to just add one word to that and have them say a strong electronic dollar is in our nation's interest. A strong electronic dollar is one that works smoothly in transactions, empowers monetary policy to bring a speedy end to recessions, and keeps its value over time with no concessions to inflation. Thanks. Answer any question, and there are a lot you could ask. You have many, many choices from which to come up with questions. Yeah. You mean negative interest rates? Yeah, yeah. Primarily investment and uh, durables purchases. So, so. Um, I have a paper with um, my, my former colleague, Bob Barsky, who is now at the Chicago Fed, and Chris House, that, that shows that 
in terms of monetary policy interacting with, with sticky prices, the action is all in terms of durables and investment. In fact, if you, what we did was if, if you write down a model where durables and investment have flexible prices and you know, non-durables, like let's say bananas have sticky prices, then um, you, the monetary policy doesn't stimulate the economy anymore. It's really, you know, and you don't see this if you write down a model that doesn't have investment in it. But once you've got investment there in the model, there's very little stimulus that comes from, you know, anything else but like durables or investment. You know, if people are buying refrigerators and, and washing machines and cars and stuff, that, that's a big deal in terms of interest rate effects for obvious reasons. But, you know, a lot of things, you know, bananas, banana consumption is not going to be affected much by interest rates. That is such a wonderful question, and it has a very interesting answer. So, um, now, the, initially you might think, well, this, this ought to be mainly important for countries that are somehow near the zero lower bound, and of course, most countries that are left, less developed have, a, have more inflation and in, therefore interest rates that are further away from zero, because remember, um, you know, interest rates are equal, equal to inflation plus the real interest rate, and, and real interest rates are, uh, you know, normally positive or at least only a little bit negative. And so, once you have substantial inflation, you're not going to be near the zero lower bound. Um, so, how does this matter for countries in that situation? So, so take the case of uh, of a country that um, was running seven percent inflation, let's say, and had. Uh, you know, had interest rates a bit higher than that. Uh, there, there's a very interesting thing you could do. You could actually uh, use this distinction between electronic money and, and paper currency to actually uh, bring inflation down in a way that was much less costly than other ways. So now I want to stipulate this has to be a government that's really gotten its act together. They're, not, they're, they're totally committed to not trying to use money printing to balance their budget. They're totally committed to not trying to overstimulate the economy for political reasons. But let's imagine they really truly have gotten their act together and they're ready to bring inflation down, but, but they're worried about the cost of doing so. Here's what you can do. So you, uh, what you can do is you, you it involves this control over the unit of account that I talked about. So I'm going to be assuming that the government really has control over the unit of account. So in this case, what you want to do is say, is first you stick with the paper unit of account. Uh, and then you have an exchange rate between paper and electronic money where you basically make the electronic uh, peso, let's say, be like an indexed version so that, it, it, so that now the inflation is kind of by construction zero in, in the electronic peso, okay, so that, so the, now, now here you're going to have the electronic peso appreciating substantially relative to the paper peso. Then once people are used to the idea that the electronic peso has no inflation, now you switch over which is the unit of account. Now you've got to be very careful. Once you make the electronic peso the unit of account, 
you can no longer make its inflation zero by construction. You have to keep its inflation zero by good monetary policy once it's the unit of account that's that, therefore what monetary policy works on. Um, but, but by getting people used to the idea of zero inflation in the electronic peso, once you make, once you switch over and make the electronic peso the real thing, you've immediately gotten people used to um, zero inflation in what is now the new unit of account. And I think that would absolutely be worth trying. Again, I want to emphasize you have to have a government and a central bank that has its act together before you try to do that. Or, you know, because it, it once you've made the electronic money the unit of account, to keep inflation zero in it, you've got to have good monetary policy. The, the, ma the magic is only transition magic. It's not magic in keeping inflation at zero. That, that requires the hard work of good monetary policy. Ah, there the real question is, what counts as unproductive, right? When do you need negative interest rates? It's when investment opportunities look relatively crummy. Okay, now, the, the thing is, though, unproductive compared to what? You know, if you have people out of work, you don't want to leave those resources, un, you know, unproductively unused. You have people who want to work, they should be doing something. And so you want to do the best investment projects you've got, even if they look not so great. So um, now part of the argument that low enough interest rates will definitely do the trick is that there really are things. I mean, maybe you'll end up building houses. Um, in, in really bad cases, maybe you'd end up having people, you know, buy cans of tuna fish or something, or they'd be, they'd be you know, storing, buying stuff to store it because, you know, it was cheaper to buy it now and then have the amount of money that they, uh, that they owed shrink. Um, if that's the best you can find, if that's the best the economy can find, that's what you should be, do, be doing. And once all the resources of the economy are being productively used, guess what? Investment projects will work better. So one of the things you've got to understand is that the interest rate it takes to get the economy going depends on how badly the economy is doing already. When the economy is booming, a lot of investment projects work, look good. When the economy is doing badly, almost all investment projects look terrible. Might, might be a few exceptions, but a lot of investment projects look terrible. So at the beginning, when you're in a deep recession, you have to get a very, very low interest rate to get things jump-started because you've got to convince people to invest despite the fact that the economy is doing terrible. But then once they do invest, in, in, then the economy is not doing terribly anymore, and then a lot of investment projects look better again. So it's, it's just getting out of the hole. Once you've gotten out of the hole, you should be back to normally productive investment projects. Ah, capital flight is part of the transmission mechanism. <laughs> I mean, capital flight makes it sound like a bad thing, but in fact, um, here's, here's the deal there. So uh, one of the key ways that 
Now, besides investment, the other key way that negative interest rates stimulate the economy is the following. So I've got to do a little bit of international finance here. So if interest rates in the United States were really low, then people would say, wow, why didn't I go get a, a better interest rate off in Europe? Okay, so they're sending their money abroad, but, but it's okay. Suppose they want to buy some European bonds. They, you know, we're Americans. What we got are these U.S. dollars. So we got to buy the European bonds with American dollars. Pretty soon there are a lot of American dollars kicking around Europe. Okay, the, the Europeans don't want another big pile of American dollars. The ones who do want a pile of American dollars already have them. Now some people who don't want those piles have them, and so they say, what am I going to do with these American dollars? Let's take them to the bank. But, you know, the bank is in Europe. It doesn't want another big pile of American dollars either. So they're, they're like a hot potato kicking around in the rest of the world. And so the, you know, the exchange rate changes so that the value of a dollar comes down and U.S. goods look cheaper and exports go up. And, of course, Americans also are going to import less. And so you have stimulus by having more net exports. That's part of the transmission mechanism. You can call it capital flight, but that's, that's part of how it works. Now, an objection you could make is, wow, isn't that hard on the other countries that now, you know, have less aggregate demand? And the answer there is, is simple. It's like they ought to go to the negative interest rates too. You know, you're not doing this in order to disadvantage the other countries. If everybody did it, if everybody went to negative interest rates, then you would have a global monetary policy expansion. And guess what? In the world as a whole, you, you can't have a lot of capital flight to Mars as things are now. There's not enough of a Martian economy that we know of. At least we're not in trade with it. And um, so you, uh, the world as a whole is, is going to have to get the stimulus from investment. And um, so people, people often talk about, when, when, whenever you have stimulative monetary policy, they'd say, oh, that's a currency war. Well, guess what? Here's, here's the test for whether something is really a currency war as a, at all or not. Um, if every country did it, would we have a global monetary policy expansion? If yes, that's not a currency war. If every country did it, would it cancel each other out? That's a currency war. That you can happen. I mean, and, and you can have countries that are just uh, buying, uh, each other, buying some other country's treasury bills. Guess what? If they sell their own treasury bills to buy yours and you do, you do the same, that cancels out. That's a currency war. But if everybody is going to negative interest rates, that's not a currency war. That's a global monetary policy expansion. But I consider it, I consider it a good thing that the first country to break through the zero lower bound and go to negative interest rates gets a reward. They get to have bigger stimulus for a smaller reduction in interest rates because of this net export kicks. That's an appropriate reward because the, the first country to break through the zero lower bound is doing a great service for the world. We, can, we see how when things are added to the monetary policy toolkit, it opens things up for other countries. Look at Europe. Europe is doing quantitative easing. Do you really think that the European Central Bank would have ever done quantitative easing if other countries like the U.S. hadn't done it first? They just wouldn't have. And so it's, uh, or would have taken, I, I can guarantee you it would have taken a lot longer. So um, anyway, that, that net export kick is a nice, nice benefit to the first country that's helping us all out.
I mean, the, the exchange rate moves around all the time, and you, you even have the uh, you, you even have the the balance of payments moving around all the time without uh, without huge problems. I mean, you get. I mean, look, the U.S. is a is a big enough economy relative to its trade with the rest of the world that it would be getting a large share of its kick from 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 investment, and that the part of it that would be through net exports, I think, would be well within the range that we've seen seen historically for for other reasons. But uh, I don't I don't think it would be that dramatic. And there are a lot of other countries that are just very very used to you know, seeing the change in their exchange rate as a big part of how their monetary policy works. And again, it's just not that different from what, what they're used to. By the way, uh, this is true in general with, with interest rate effects. I mean, uh, one of the big advantages of using interest rate policy is we really understand it, right? I mean, because, because it's in interest rates compared to inflation that matter, we actually have a decent amount of experience with interest rates substantially below inflation. And so uh, we kind of know what interest rates do. By contrast, we really don't understand quantitative easing. What do we know about quantitative easing? We know that the amount of quantitative easing we did seemed to be helpful but wasn't enough. Okay, well, suppose you say, well, if it's not enough, maybe we should have done three or four times as much quantitative easing. Nobody knows what that would have done. Okay, probably would have had more stimulus, significantly more. In terms of side effects, nobody knows what the side effects would have been. And we don't even know theoretically because our simplest models say quantitative easing does nothing. We know that's not right. But, but the problem is the particular reason, which is it has to be some non-standard reason, that some institutional reason, some, in, some reason about uh, the way people think or, or, or the, 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 whatever reason quantitative easing works, um, it's, it's going to matter the details, just what the side effects are. By contrast, interest rate policy is fairly well understood. You know, if you go to negative interest rates, there might be a few extra effects, but the main effect we understand. With quantitative easing, the main effect has to come from non something non-standard, so the whole thing is weird. That doesn't mean it doesn't work. That means we don't understand its side effects, and quite honestly, worries about the side effects are why the, the Fed really underdid it in quantitative easing in terms of the stimulus that would have been needed. Maybe they did the wise thing, maybe they didn't, but they didn't do enough stimulus because they were worried about side effects. Interest rate policy, including its effects on, on uh, exports, we understand pretty well. It's nothing, nothing really new. There, I mean, it sounds like it's new because it's negative interest rates, but it's the same fundamental mechanisms in all the models. And uh, even, you know, as long as you think that it's the interest rate relative to inflation that matters, in experience as well. Oh no! <laughs> Thank you.